Welcome to everyone in the room. The 10 a.m. is absolutely packed. I love it. And uh, online, I asked where, you, where you're watching from. One of the people said, from my car. So I hope that they're safe. I hope they're on the driver who's churching at the same time. Um, hopefully, that's just the audio part that they're interested in there. But if you haven't met me, my name is James, and I was an atheist. I used to believe that Christians are stupid to believe in Christianity. There's a lot of things you have to be really daft to believe about Christianity. So that's the worldview that I, I came from. I used to put Christians on the spot. I used to say, here's a question for you, and I asked them questions. And what I generally found is Christians are really bad at answering questions about the faith that they claim to hold to. And uh, I was really disappointed that people claim they center their life around Jesus, but they can't tell me why Jesus is the only way. How do you know Jesus really lived? How do you know that Jesus died? Um, just proof questions that, to my mind, are basic elementary things for believing what you say you believe. I was one of those angry atheists that loved to debate. And um, that was where I was at. I never wanted to be a Christian. It's the last thing I wanted in the world, but God had other plans. God was about to troll me big time. And God came after me when I had no desire to know him. And he cornered me with his own unique set of things that he used, including the lyrics of Christian bands that were in heavy metal. Bizarre things that God uses to get to you. And then the sermons of Timothy Keller, some guys that walked the journey with me, the life of my mom being a testimony. And more than most of these things, the writings of former atheist C.S. Lewis. And I came to the conclusion, not just a little bit, but all of Christianity is 100% true. And I was dragged there by the weight of evidence. And my heart was reluctant, but my head was convinced. And I surrendered myself to Jesus. I said, I will do what you want me to do. I will say what you want me to say, because my life is yours. Later, my heart caught up with me. And today, nothing can choke me up quite like the fact that Jesus saves and he loves you. It makes me emotional. But in those days, that's not, not what caught me first. What caught me first is evidence. And today, as I am preaching to you, I don't want to have other boys and girls and men and, and ladies out there that when they're asking legitimate questions because their heart is searching for answers, that we don't have any good answers, that we don't have conviction, that we aren't bold about the things that we believe because we have no service to God's kingdom that way. And so I've got a burden in my life for helping the church to be built up, to be strong in passion and conviction about the things that you believe to be able to provide evidence and to reason with people and say, not only is this true because um, God is something in my life, but I can prove to you as well. This is something that makes a lot of you nervous. I can see it on your faces, but you will be all right. I promise you that. And this particular burden of mine comes to the fore when I look at this Acts chapter 4 where we are as a church. Because Peter and John were put on the spot. Like I used to like to put Christians on the spot, they were put on the spot. And they gave an answer to a very difficult question that was so full of boldness, conviction, evidence, that I feel like we all need to learn from it. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 4 in your own Bibles if you've got them on you. Or you can follow along on the Sky Bible behind me. It says in Acts chapter 4, we're going from verse 1 to 12. By the way, the back context is probably helpful. If you weren't here last week, Peter and John had just healed a lame beggar and preached the sermon. It was insane. Lots of people got saved. This guy's life was turned around. But this was not very popular 
in everyone's eyes. And so that's where we are in Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So that's like 10,000 people, if you're including the woman there, getting saved from this one thing. This is bad news for the Sadducees. So they arrested them, and on the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, he's a big dog, with Caiaphas and John and Alexander, these are all big dogs, and all who were of the high priestly family. Verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, they put them on the spot. And they said, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, remember, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." The most powerful statement you have ever heard. This guy is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's dripping with God's power and he's saying it straight. Something the world desperately wants from the church. So I'm going to look at it under two headings. The first one being the trial and this is going to be a shorter point and then secondly the truth. We're going to look at the trial and we're going to look at the truth. So the first heading if you're taking notes and if you do take notes you get to heaven quicker. So that's a good idea. So the trial so just to set the scene as we know they healed the guys and then the priest and the captain of the temple and the sadducees came upon them now you might not know this but the sadducees were the highest possible religious authority of the day there were other guys there as well but just the sadducees are very influential in the elite of society and they have political ties so to be in trouble with the sadducees is a big problem and they were greatly annoyed why were they greatly annoyed? Some guy's life has been changed. He was crippled, now he's not crippled. Praise Jesus. No, not, not praise Jesus, the opposite. Who's this Jesus? You can't, be t you can't be doing stuff in the name of Jesus. What are you doing? So the Sadducees, these guys hate Jesus. So much so that when he lived, they were the ones that orchestrated his death. They used their political ties to pull strings and they thought we know how to deal with the Jesus problem because Jesus was attracting a big following. Let's kill Jesus. Opposition and persecution, that's their modus operandi, the Sadducees. And then Jesus did die, but their party was short-lived, three days to be exact, because Jesus rose from the dead and caused a massive headache to all those guys, because here they are, Jesus is now resurrected, he's got more followers than ever before, the guys are more pumped on Jesus than they ever were before, and the Sadducees were sad. That's how I remember to call them the Sadducees. Um, I'm glad you guys are filled with the spirit to perceive that joke. Um, 
So the Sadducees thought that's how they deal with these problems. But now we've got a new problem on the block, and that's the followers of Jesus, long after the resurrection of Jesus. These guys are hopped up on the spirit, and they're healing people and preaching, and thousands, tens of thousands of people are coming to Jesus. So because the Sadducees are slow learners, they're going to do the same thing that they tried with Jesus, and that is persecution and opposition. So they put Peter and they put John on trial, and they come up with this trial to try and squash the message of Jesus. But the truth is, my friends, you cannot squash the message of Jesus because not only is this an unstoppable church that we're talking about, but it's the unstoppable Jesus behind the unstoppable church. Every time you try to shut Jesus out of a sector, it backfires on you. We look at what happened in all communist nations, especially China, shutting Jesus out of that sector, and then Jesus goes, ah, oh, I've got a good idea. Let's make China my hotspot of the Christian faith. And now that's the fastest growing church in the world. And by the year 2020, there will be 160 million Christians in China alone. Just when you think you've shut Jesus out, he goes, I've got something to show you. I'm the savior of the world. You can't stop me. Just when you think you can try and shut out Jesus. I try to shut out Jesus and look what's happened. God had the last laugh on that one. Here I am preaching. I was the guy that ripped off the priest at school. Today I'm the priest. Okay, so God has a sense of humor. You can't shut him out. Doesn't matter whether you're a Sadducee or you think you're a hotshot. You're absolutely nothing compared to Jesus. Another thing that's nothing compared to Jesus is the Romans that also thought they would try and clamp down on Christianity. Just because they were the superpowers of the world, they thought they were big compared to the superpower of the universe. Now the Romans, they didn't have an issue with the faith actually holding to believing in a God as long as you also worshiped Caesar that you had to say Kaiser Curios, uh, that Caesar's Lord. But most society complied with them, worshiping their God, but also Caesar, except for Christians, because Christians believed Jesus alone is my Lord. And so they would not dare to say Caesar is Lord because he's no Lord, only Jesus is Lord. This brought them into big opposition because they lived in a pluralistic society where different people believed different stuff and the Romans didn't want anyone evangelizing and causing mayhem. We live in a very similar society today. We live in a society where if you say, I believe there's only one truth, there's only one way, his name is Jesus and I want you to know him, that that message is seen as increasingly narrow-minded and seen as increasingly exclusive. It's even being termed as hate speech. We live in a society where the same opposition that they faced and the trial that they were on is the trial that we are in. And how will we respond when we get put on the spot? I want to suggest that we glean some things from Peter and we take it into our own lives. So that's the first, just to set the scene, the trial. Secondly, the truth. And this is where I'm going to park. The response that Peter gives is a truth bomb of note. He says that Jesus is the guy that they rejected, but there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's put on the spot, but he doesn't shrink back. He goes for it, and this is what he says. And I wanted to dwell on this statement. I wanted to call your attention to it like the ringtone, really honing in your focus on this statement, verse 12. Because verse 12, there's salvation in no other name but Jesus, is a statement that the world does not believe. And it, there might be people in this room that aren't convinced that Jesus is the only way. 
And so I wanted to spend a bunch of time on this statement and pummel this verse with a bunch of objections that you will hear from friends, family, and critics in the world and see how this verse stands up against everything we can throw at it. Because the Bible has positioned that you need to be prepared to give an answer to people. First Peter 3 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You can't say, I've got a sermon for you, I've got a resource for you, because they don't necessarily care what Tim Keller says or James Now says. They care what you say, and God says, you be prepared for a defense. I think um, often when it comes to this verse, we think this, this is for clever people. This is just for Jesus people. This instruction isn't to elite. It's just to people that believe in Jesus. Peter was an unsophisticated fisherman. He had no education, and yet look at him changing the world. I want to say, whoever you are, be prepared to make a defense. God's going to use you in this. So let's pummel with some objections, shall we? First objection that people might give in response to this verse 12 claim is surely Jesus. He can't be the only way, right? You may have heard it said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere with what you believe. Many people in society say it doesn't really matter who you're praying to, it's all the same. In fact, Barna Group that does heavy-duty research in the States found that out of people that call themselves Christian, 28% of Christians said that all people pray to the same God or spirit no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. So if that statistic applies to us, which obviously I won't just copy-paste American statistics to South Africa, but the implication would be imagine if a fifth of people over here actually or a quarter, actually believe you could be praying to Buddha, Muhammad, Dal, or even Ron Hubbard or Mary, and it would all be the same. So that goes to show the state of where we're at here. In the final analysis, I've heard people say, what matters is not who you believe, but that you're a person of faith. And to deny this position and say there's only one truth is seen as narrow-minded. And I hadn't been a Christian for very long before I was accused of being narrow-minded. It takes me back to my varsity days when I was like a one-year-old Christian with long hair down to here and a big red beard, screaming metal lyrics and causing absolute mayhem on the UJ campus. Um, my favorite subject by a country mile was philosophy. On a secondary level, I liked audiovisual because Laura was there, my wife. But in those days, she friend-zoned me. But um, anyway, philosophy is the topic of today. And philosophy was a subject I loved and my lecturers loved me except for one lecturer who hated me because she taught philosophy of religion. And I was hopped up on Jesus. One year old Christian, I'm pumped. And I'm full of arguments. I was an ex-atheist. I was the one that caused holes in, in Christian's arguments and now I'm a Christian putting holes in atheist's arguments. So this wasn't a good time for her or for me. For me, it was fine. But the, it all started our animosity one day when she decided to impose this view and she says there are no absolute truths to which I said are you absolutely sure <laughs> and um, that caused problems I'm just trying to provoke the lass into anger as a good Christian was as the good Christian that I was but um, actually it's a valid question because if you don't believe that her statement is absolute then it's not a statement for me to take seriously but if she believes that it is an absolute statement, then she's contradicted herself because she's made an absolute statement. This caused problems between us. And um, she said, oh. And she looked on the register and she said, I suppose you're Mr. Nell. 
as if that was a swear word. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> and I suppose you're a Christian. And I hadn't told her I'm a Christian, so I took that as a fat compliment. I'm like, yes, I am a Christian. So she said, I suppose you believe that Jesus is the only way. I said, yeah. And then I got berated until the cows came home and I got called bigoted, narrow-minded, and the class is loving it. They're checking me out. They're waiting for a response. I just took it that time and I said, I'll plot your downfall for a later stage. <laughs> but I just took it. After class came to her, she looked a little bit calmer. I thought maybe I can walk past her without her decapitating me. I felt like a caterpillar, like coming up to like a hawk or something that was going to absolutely annihilate me. So I, I crawled up to the lash. And um, then she says, James, I've calmed down now a bit, but I just can't believe you can be so narrow-minded. So I said, ma'am, okay, let's have a go. So I said, ma'am, do you believe that it's possible that Jesus is a way to God? Just possible. She said, I suppose it's possible. So I said, well, suppose I believe Jesus is a way to God, but then suppose I go and I read his own words. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if he's lying about that man, surely he's not even a way to God. Surely he's no way to God or he's the only way to God. And she says, oh, I see. Because Mr. James Bearded Nell believes Jesus is the only way and the unsupported premise is whatever James believes is right for the world, that's why you believe we should all be Christian. And I said, you don't, I don't know if you understand. I don't believe because I think I'm clever. I think because Jesus said so. It's as basic as that. So she said, I can't understand why you can believe in such a narrow-minded God. I never got a chance to respond to that accusation because she said, I tell you what, I've got a lesson lined up for you next week. To which I replied, I will be praying for you. <laughs> so she came, and this leads us to our next objection to verse 12. She wanted to prove this point to me, that each religion sees part of the truth, but none can possibly claim to see the whole truth. And she put up this picture of this elephant. This is actually a parable that is from the ancient Indian subcontinent, and it's condom, uh, common to Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism. And the analogy goes like this, that blind men come along to what they do not know yet is an elephant. But they come along blind, and they're only allowed to touch one part of this elephant, and they get to describe what the thing is that they have come into contact with. So the first person says, this creature is long and flexible like a snake because they're touching the trunk of the elephant. No, it's not. It is round and thick like a tree trunk, says the second person because they're touching the leg of the elephant. No, no, no. It's round and flat because they're touching the side. You get the drift. Each blind person is only touching one part of the elephant and they can't perceive the whole. Now she comes and she argues with smile in her face. In the same way, it could be argued, Religions all from the world all ha have a grasp on the truth and spiritual reality, but none can see the whole elephant or claim to have a comprehensive vision of the truth. And so this claim that she's throwing at me seems to be very humble. No one can see the whole elephant. But then it dawned on me, this is one big contradiction. So I put up my hand and she looked at me with the beadiest killing eyes you've ever seen in your life. Because now I'm about to object to this next wave of argument of hers. So I'm like, the problem with the story is that the person telling the story is not blind. So every religious claim in this story is posited to be arrogant because it claims to know the whole truth. 
But your analogy of religious pluralism and that claim is possibly more arrogant than every other religious claim combined. Because you're calling every religion blind touching a part of the elephant and only religious pluralists have the vantage point to see the whole elephant. How can you say these are all blind men touching an elephant unless you see the blind men and the elephant? And so we notice that even this religious pluralism is probably the most arrogant truth claim that can possibly exist. So I say to her, ma'am, the problem is all religious claims claim to see the whole elephant. It's unavoidable. But then I went one step further, and this made her really unhappy. I said it makes the claims of Christianity all the more valid. If we are blind and we can't perceive an infinite truth or infinite reality or infinite God, and we're all blind men touching a big elephant, the only way that we could know this insurmountable truth is if this insurmountable truth came down in skin. And if someone came down and said, I'm not pointing to the way, I am the way. I'm not pointing to the truth, I am the truth. The fact is, no religion has any right whatsoever to claim that they know anything about God except for Christianity. Because only in Christianity did God himself come down and make himself visible to blind men like me. The invisible became visible. The writer entered the page. The playwright took the stage. It's the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And I was getting pumped, and the lecture was getting bleak. And after that, I, anyway, let's not go on that. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Enough about the poor lecturer. We didn't have a happily ever after to that story. But as you can see, friends, I'm passionate about the fact all religious claims claim an absolute truth, but only Christianity has a basis for it in the whole world. Next objection to verse 12. All religions teach pretty much the same thing. You've probably heard this said before in your life, where people define religion as a system to get to God or to be godly. People say pretty much all religions teach the same thing. Now, I was at a New Year's party a couple of years back, and I was abandoned by my wife. Not that she was at the party to start with, but she just sent me there and said, I'll pick you up after 12. It was like a school child moment. She'll pick me up after the New Year's party is done. No good ever happens at a party when my wife isn't there. So what happened is I didn't have my wife there to calm me down with religious arguments. And a bunch of my schoolmates were there, and they're well aware. Don't pick a fight about religion with James. He was a heavy-duty atheist, now he's a heavy-duty Christian. Just avoid the guy. But um, there were some girlfriends there that didn't know the golden rule. And so there was one girlfriend in particular that heard that I'm a pastor, and then she went in for the kill. And basically, she believes um, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, and that she thinks they all teach the same thing. And that all the differences are superficial and insignificant, but they're fundamentally similar. And I said, of course, I believe that all religions are at best superficially similar, but they are fundamentally different. So I said, okay, but you believe in Hinduism, Christianity, all this stuff all in one? She says, yes. So I said, okay, and they all teach the same thing? She says, yes. I said, okay, cool. So who is God? Let's start there. Surely, if they're all the same, they should agree on such a premise as who is God. So she said, I believe God is an all-loving spirit in the universe. To which I replied that Buddhism doesn't claim to have a personal God. Islam doesn't claim to have a loving God. And both Christianity and uh, Judaism would heavily object to God being called a spirit being in the universe. So after one simple question, we realize she's made a statement that contradicts every single religion that she says is basically the same teaching. We notice that if I was to have the time to go through each and every religion with you, then you would find out that they are fundamentally different in concepts of God, sin, salvation, and the purpose of mankind. They are at best superficially similar. 
But you can join Institute for that, guys. If you want, if you want to download on that comparison of religions, you must join us for an Institute class on that. But what I was more interested in presenting to this lass is there's one difference between Christianity and every other religion, which is much more important for me to focus on. And that is the fact that every other, um, oh, look, there's a couple of quotes I was supposed to do. Just to say, if, um, I, was, I wasn't just supposed to go off about this girl. Very clever people have had her same view, by the way. Albert Einstein said, all religions, arts, and sciences are branches from the same tree. Nobel Peace winning, uh, prize, prize winning Mahatma Gandhi said the essence of all religions is one, only their approaches are different. So I'm not on that goal, I'm just saying this is a very common view and it's not very well thought out. Now there's something very different about Christianity and, and Peter actually highlights it in his passage in Acts 4. When asked why, that they shouldn't evangelize, they said we can't help it. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. I want you to take careful notice of what he can't shut up about, what they had seen and what they had heard. That is a statement that relates to empirical evidence, the senses, what they had seen and what they had heard is the thing that they can't shut up about. What they didn't say is we can't shut up about this amazing philosophy or this enlightened way of living or this teaching. They are not attracted by that, neither do they draw attention to that, but they draw attention to a historical event that happened. Now, here's a humongous rift between every religion and Christianity. Every religion is focused in on its teaching, and the teaching saves you. It's incidental whether Muhammad was on this mountain or that mountain, or whether there really was a spider that covered the mouth of the cave. It's totally incidental. What really matters is the teaching, and the teaching saves you. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Jaidism, you name it. It's the teaching that matters. In Christianity, teaching will never save you. In Christianity, what saves you a historical fact of an event that happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, there is no salvation. I would say to you, if you don't believe Jesus is, uh, is raised, stop there. Don't read from the Sermon on the Mount or try to pick up some quotes from the Bible. It's totally useless. It has absolutely no basis whatsoever. The Apostle Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, our whole ministry is in vain. If you can disprove the death, resurrection, and life of Jesus, you need not worry about Jesus for the rest of your life. But if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus happened, it's the historical event that can save you. That's what Peter and John had seen and what they had heard. Now, the life of Jesus is indisputable. Oxford professors have lined up the historical evidence, and the life of Jesus is more historically plausible than the life of Alexander the Great that we learn about in history. There were people that saw Jesus. He claimed to be Jesus. Even secular historians recorded that he claimed to be Jesus. Even secular historians claimed that he did miracles. It's a fact. It's indisputable. He died. They were there. People saw this. He went and he was died and he died and he got put in a tomb with a heavy stone. There's many, many witnesses to this very fact. And then three days later, there was an earthquake that shook the whole of Jerusalem. There are archaeological evidences to that. There's historical um, evidences in Jerusalem of the rebuilding project. It's a fact that there was a resurrection that happened. Jesus rocked up and he appeared to people, holes in his sides, holes in his hands, and they saw this is the same Jesus that was there. Yes, and then he, for 40 days he appeared before scores of people. If this wasn't true, this whole Christian religion would have been chucked out within the first century of Christianity because people could have said, I was there, that never happened. But it was, they were there, it did happen, and it's a historical fact that it happened, and the historical fact that it happens, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the very thing that saves you. If it didn't happen, teaching doesn't matter. But the fact that all the teaching in Christianity comes from that fact. So 
this is drastically different from every other thing that is out there in religion at all. And the thing that I celebrate is you can disprove Christianity as quickly as you want, but don't even try. Smarter people than you have tried to do that and have ended up being the strongest Christians in the world like Lee Strobel, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, giants of the faith that try to go and disprove it, end up being Christians because God trolls those people. Jesus saves. Well, how does he save? His death and his resurrection. Hallelujah. It's not something that you need to follow. There's not a way of life that you need to follow. It's belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Something so simple and differentiates it from every other thing. Now, I'm not too sure exactly what I was supposed to be saying there, but we'll go on to point four. Is this objection that surely Jesus can't be the only way to salvation? Many people are really stuck on this arrogance that they think that this claim is ridiculous. In fact, you might have heard the statement that there's many ways up the, same, up the mountain, but we all climb in the same mountain, all of our religions. Yeah? But the Bible says something very different. It says there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this is a fact, and you can look it up in your own time. Neither Muhammad, Krishna, Confucius, Buddha, or any other religious founder actually claimed to be a savior in and of themselves. None of them actually said, I'm a savior. They just said, I can point you the way to salvation. It's only Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. It's a unique claim. So let's take a quick look. In Buddhism, the problem with Buddhism, they say the world is groping, grasping, full of selfishness. I think that's true, by the way. But what's the solution, according to Buddha? Well, his last words in the Tripitaka, that's their sacred text, before he dies is the following. That you must revere and obey the law. This is how you're going to get saved, according to Buddhism. Regard the law as your master. The law is like unto a light that shines in the darkness, pointing out the way. Behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. Strive without ceasing to gain your own salvation. So the problem with the world is you're selfish and the solution is stop it. Strive without ceasing. Hinduism teaches causality. We're quite aware of it. We throw out the word karma all the time. But do we understand karma? The teaching of karma is whatever you do that's good or what's bad will come back to you. But Hinduist worldview also believes that we are intrinsically selfish. And so you will keep repaying in multiple lives, which is what reincarnation is. You will keep repaying multiple lives for the sin, for the evil, for the selfishness that you perpetuate. And you will keep getting reborn and keep getting reborn and keep getting reborn until you pay. So problem, selfishness, solution, stop it. Strive without ceasing. Islam has 114 surahs of the Quran, chapters, and they all claim that Allah is merciful. But each and every time it says Allah is merciful, there's conditions attached. He's merciful to those that pay money. He's merciful to those that pray. He's merciful to those that obey the, the laws of the Quran. All of these things are the contingents of mercy from Allah. So the problem there again is sin, but the, pro but the solution is strive without ceasing. And we could go on, friends, for a long time, going through different major religions and, and pointing out that this is the case. But, you know, I think it's very optimistic to think we can save ourselves from selfishness. You don't prescribe a panado to someone who has advanced cancer. How can you prescribe good works to someone who's born selfish? 
I often hear people say things like, I believe good people from all religions go to heaven. And they think I'm being exclusive by saying Jesus is the only way. And I point out to them, that's the most exclusive claim I've ever heard because what about us bad people? Where's the solution for the bad people? The bad news of religion is there is no good news for bad people. But the good news of Christianity is there's only good news for bad people. Don't know if I phrased that correctly. If you consider yourself not to be a good person, I've got good news for you. Jesus came to save you. Religion has nothing to offer you. If you think you're perfect, you can go ahead and follow the Quran if you want and see how that goes. But if you think you're imperfect, the good news is Jesus said, I came for you. The good news is that Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. But Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He was resurrected from the dead. Jesus came for prostitutes and tax collectors. He came for guys like me who's just sinful to the core. Guys who didn't want anything to know with God. There isn't actually an equation where you can try and get another religious founder to save you. So it's not Jesus versus a bunch of other equally valid um, options of who can save you. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. Do you believe you can save you? Or do you believe Jesus can save you? Because every religion puts it down to your name must save you. But there's only one religion, which is Christianity, where Jesus comes down and says, salvation is found in me. So there's something out here for us. If you are in the house and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I've got good news to you for you because you don't have to sweat anymore to try and get to God when Jesus bled himself to get to you. You don't have to work to try to get into heaven when heaven came down to get to you. You don't have to strive without ceasing when Jesus said, I did that. I strove without ceasing. There's good news in the gospel. There is no other good news. There is no other person out there who claims that they can save you. And no one else, by the way, could pay the penalty for your sins because your sins were against an infinite God. So the penalty is infinite. So how can finite people pay an infinite price? We can't. So it took the infinite to make himself finite and come pay the price for us. And so therefore there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. There's no option B. There's no option C. It's not this, that, or the other. It's either save yourself or Jesus save me. And so there's good news for the world today. No, it's not the fact that Christianity is one of various equal, equally valid religions. It's that there's one thing that can save you, and it's Jesus. And Jesus stood at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said to the Father, if there's any other way, you know, people think there's lots of ways to heaven. But Jesus asked the question. He said, if there's any other way for the salvation deal to happen, let this cup pass from you. But the father didn't let the cup pass. He let Jesus, who was his only son, that he had loved eternally in heaven, he saw him come down and suffer. If you have a son, imagine giving them up to die. Imagine watching them be spat on, bleeding on the cross. That's what the father had to do because there was no other way. And if there's no other way, then there's no other name but the name of Jesus. So stand with me. We're about to sing that there's one name that holds weight above them all. And then his fame outlasts the earth that he formed. We're going to get our hearts in a posture of worship. 
get our voices ring out let them be hoarse at the end of this raise up your hands because there's no other name and i'm going to be back up to do some applications jesus is not one of many truths he's the truth he's not one of many ways he is the way he's not a philosophical concept to consider he's the living god who came down for you and if there's no other way for salvation there is no other name but the name of jesus let's lift them up in this place we lift you up lord the king of kings and the lord of lords there's no one like him none can stand beside no one gets compared it's jesus there is no other name just stay standing i want to quick fire some applications for you the first one is friends we must be filled with the holy spirit as much electricity and power and adoration for jesus as is in this room should be our daily normal we must be filled with the holy spirit when Peter spoke with conviction, it wasn't because he was clever. It was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't know much about that, I want to encourage you, sign up for our Get Filled initiative. We want to help you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the key. We don't need clever arguments. We need the Spirit of God. Secondly, do not be intimidated. Peter wasn't a confident guy. He denied Jesus thrice. And once it was to a little girl that said, you were with Jesus, right? And then he denied it he was nervous about a little girl and here we have him preaching this sermon it wasn't self-confidence it wasn't peter confidence it was god confidence we gain god confidence from knowing this is god's mission these are god's people and i'm his mouthpiece it's not about clever arguments it's not about being an intellectual it's about being someone in god's hands if you place yourself in god's hands you're dangerous man you're potent just to place yourself in God's hands. Don't be intimidated when you go into your places, into your spaces, and into your relationships tomorrow and the rest of the week. You stand as an ambassador for Jesus. Don't be intimidated. Thirdly, guys, we need to be good at providing evidence for the belief that we have. You can actually upskill yourself in this area. There's many good resources available, but I would also say sign up for our institute courses that can, up, that can upskill you in this area because some people need evidence and we need to be able to provide it. And then fourthly, and this is the most important one, friends, is we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't preach the gospel, if we do a whole bunch of intellectual things, we've done nothing. But if we just proclaim Jesus Christ crucified, we have done the most immense thing we can do with our lives. We are in public places, public spaces, and in various relationships this week. I wanna encourage you to pray that God opens an opportunity for you in your life to share the good news of Jesus with someone. Not everyone's gifted in evangelism, but we're all witnesses of Jesus Christ. We must be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So I wanted to ask if any of you guys felt comfortable to write on that wall, right there, I wanna share Jesus with and write their name there and pray into it. I wanna share Jesus at and mention a public space, place where you wanna share Jesus because we want the good news of Jesus, not for ourselves, but for other people. If someone didn't share the good news with you, you wouldn't be in a relationship with Jesus. And God says you can't outsource being a witness he said, don't leave town until you're filled with the Spirit and you will be my witnesses. The baton has been passed to us and we're the unstoppable church now. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us today. The same unstoppable Jesus is building His church, the unstoppable church, because of His Spirit. And so I just wanted to close us in prayer and think about also signing up for the I Want to Know How to Share My Faith 101 initiative. 
If you feel intimidated by that, it's a good step for you to take. Father, we wanted to lift you up today and we wanted to say thank you for Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh, who walked among us, died a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem and was raised from the dead. We want to say that our declaration of us as City Hope Church is there's no other name but the name of Jesus. None can be placed beside you. None can be compared. None are worthy to be in the same bracket. You alone receive our highest honor, our highest adoration, our highest praise. We endeavor this morning to submit ourselves, and for all of you guys online, I'm including you in this as well, to submit our lives to Jesus Christ because that's the purpose that we were made for and nothing makes you feel quite as alive as living out the purposes of Jesus Christ. So we lay our lives before you again and we say, use us, send me, I will go because there is no other way, there is no other name but the name of Jesus. We worship you in this place and we give you the highest praise and all God's people said, amen. amen. Wonderful. Wow. What a great Sunday. Don't forget to sign up for all the stuff. See you guys next week as Lester preaches into praying for boldness to share the gospel. So it's continuing. Enjoy you guys. Same time, same place next week. Bless you.